Barbara is the founder, director and lead scientist of Sharks and Rays Australia and today's Wild Chat is all about sawfish. With four of the five sawfish species worldwide being listed as endangered, there is still so much biologists don't know and need to know in order to help this species. Barbara and her team of researchers conduct research, catch, tag and release and educate tirelessly about these amazing prehistoric creatures of the rivers and oceans. So why do sawfish need fresh water to start their life cycle? Are they a shark or a ray? Where are they found in Australia? And the pressing question from me is how do sawfish give birth to live young? Well, to get your answers to these questions, you'll have to listen to the following Wild Chat with Dr. Barbara Waringa from Sharks and Rays Australia. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following wild chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course, their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following wild chats. Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. That's good. It's so weird. We're actually introduced. We're, we're saying hi, but we said hi like two minutes yeah, ago. It's so weird how we start this podcast. <laughs> how are you going? I have Barbara here. Waringa. Barbara Waringa. I was asking you earlier how to say your name because it was a bit complicated. <laughs> I think you're doing a great job. You're trying. <laughs> what, what nationality are you, Barbara? I'm from Austria. Ah, yeah. right. Yes, yes. So we have the beautiful Barbara here and Today, I'm actually really excited to learn more about sawfish and the most amazing project that you have going on here. But before I start blabbering on, because I can blabber on, by the way, <laughs> introduce yourself. Tell me, who are you? What do you do? And then we'll just go from there and see where this world chat takes us. Yeah, cool. So I'm the founder director of Sharks and Rays Australia. I'm a biologist and I specialized on sharks and rays and then somehow 16 years ago got stuck on sawfish. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a good thing to get stuck on. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I don't know. I'm looking at the sores right now. I'm not sure I do want to get stuck on that. <laughs> but no, <yeah>. definitely not. <laughs> yeah. All right. So six. did you say 16 years ago? Yeah, I think so. 16. Yes. That's a yep. long time. Yeah. And then so, you started Sharks and Rays Australia. Yeah. So that's. I started that in 2015. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started working with sawfish, it was for my PhD. So it wasn't, okay. it wasn't that much field work. I basically started looking at how to use their saw because like mm-hmm. I realized that nobody had ever identified that. And that's, you know, the main feature of these animals. So we kind of need to know why they have that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And my son, he was actually really excited you were coming here today, but he kept saying swordfish. Yes. How did that come about? Why why were people saying swordfish? Has it ever been called a swordfish? Well, I think swordfish are marlin. Ah. So they're a totally different animal, but it's 
probably a word that people hear more often. Yes. That's my that's my guess. Yeah. But, yeah. but these are sawfish. S A W sawfish. And what are sawfish? Um, so sawfish are rays, which a lot of people don't know because when you look at a sawfish, it looks like a shark. So it has mm-hmm. that long elongated body of a shark, but then at the face, it's got the rostrum, which is an elongation of the skull. And that's about a third to a quarter of the total length of the animals and has teeth on its side. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a good piece of armor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what they use it for. That's their armor. Yeah, so they, they use it to defend themselves, but they also use it for feeding. So they will swipe at fish with that. And if you look at the saws that I have here, this one, you can see it. Yeah. You see all the little pores on there? Oh, yeah. So that's, all these little holes, like, or, or little white kind yeah. of, they look like little white freckles. Yeah, so they've got two, two different sensory systems that are distributed along the saw, and one of them allows them to detect electric fields of prey, mm-hmm. and the other one allows them to detect water movements around them. So yeah. both with that, basically, they can hunt in darkness. Ah, and in nice. murky waters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Murky waters with all the crocodiles and the. <laughs> yeah. 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 So tell us here in Australia. So, well, first of all, how many sawfish are there around the world? Do you? So there is five species globally, and four of them are found in Australia. Mm. Yeah. And which are the four, um, or what are, what, what's their common names? Green sawfish. So that's this saw. Then oh, yeah. we've got the dwarfs. Yeah. They're called dwarfs because their saw is the smallest, like shortest in relation to body size. Ah. They aren't actually dwarfs. Like we caught one early 2019 and the animal was three meters. Ooh. So they do get big. Yeah, that's not small. Um, this is a narrow. So narrow sawfish the teeth look like more like fingernails. So they're really mm. flat and wide. And then you've got this one, which is the freshwater sawfish or large tooth internationally. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the freshwater sawfish or the large tooth, as you just mentioned, is that the one that's highly endangered here or all of, all them, of are. them are? All of them are. Oh. So narrow sawfish are the ones that are still the most commonly found. And okay. that's because they reach sexual maturity after about three years, whereas the other ones take about, you know, eight to 10 years. Oh. The problem with these guys is that they have a high post-release mortality. So even though they're still found in good numbers. Right. They're also, yeah, going to have some issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you said post-release? Yeah. So, for example, when somebody catches them in a net um, and releases the animals, they suffer. Yeah. Other examples amongst sharks and rays are hammerheads, for example. So hammerhead sharks Uh, are not, they don't do well with release. So Mm. if, you know, if a recreational fisherman catches a hammerhead and takes a while to pull them in, they suffer from it and they build up so much lactatic acid in their system that they they can't actually swim afterwards. Yeah, right. So that's the same with having them in captivity too. I've found a lot of aquariums can't really keep a lot of the hammerheads and and so forth. So that's probably the same as with sawfish too, I would assume. Yeah, so so, so narrows, I'm not aware of any case where they survived in captivity, Mm. whereas, for example, freshwater sawfish Mm. do quite well and get old and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And how long do they live for? Um, that's a very good question. I think the guesstimates are at around 60 years maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So is there much research on sawfish or is this something that you found when you were doing your PhD and you're just like, well, there's not much information out there, there's not much going on, so therefore I'm going to start something myself? No. So what happened is I was doing neurobiology and sensory biology and then I started collaborating with um, Cairns Marine here in Cairns. Yeah. So they were catching animals to go into public aquaria. So I went out in the field with them, helped them catch the animals and learned from them how to do this. 
And then I used the time that these animals spent in captivity before they were sent to the aquaria. I used that to do non-invasive behavioral experiments. So I was presenting them with electric fields or I was mm. watching their feeding behaviors and stuff like that. And yeah, and that was to identify how to use their saw and what is important for them. Back then, there was a researcher in Queensland who was working with sawfish um, through fisheries. And he quit in, I think, 2009. And so at some point, I think around 2012, I was like, something needs to happen because mm. if nobody looks after these animals, then they are going to go extinct. Mm. And Queensland is considered to be one of the last strongholds. So Northern oh. Australia just in general, but Queensland as well. Yeah. And yeah, I sat on the idea of Sharks and Rays Australia for a while because it was a big deal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's something yeah. you don't just like wake up and go, yep, I'm going to do that. There's, yeah. That's a big responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, I'm, for example, I'm, a big part of me is an introvert. <laughs> and so to go out in the field <laughs> and, you know, be a team leader and, and look after people who have never been out in remote area and, you know, we catch sawfish together and, you know, sometimes have to deal with crocodiles and things like that. Like there's a lot of, I think, personal growth that needs to happen before you start doing something like that absolutely and, yeah become comfortable with it <laughs> oh well straight straight away as soon as you said you have to deal with crocodiles as well because so is there a, a particular species that you're dealing with or that you're researching when you go up to northern australia or are you covering the whole four so i think when i started sarah i wanted to do specific research projects and for example we had a tag developed that we can clip to the base of the saw mm -hmm. and it's an accelerometer but combines lots of different sensors as well and so I wanted to figure out whether the behaviors that I had seen in captivity whether they were actually displayed in the wild so that was my big thing that I wanted to do over the last years we've been able to deploy I think only three accelerometers because you need to have the right conditions you need to get that tag back from the animal uh -huh. so it doesn't send you all the information but you need to recover it and download the data and so you wouldn't want to do it in a completely open ecosystem. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then also I think what happened is that I realized that these animals are just becoming increasingly rare. Like mm. we spend a lot of time out in the field and not catching them. I was going to say, how do you catch them? So commercial fishing methods, so gill nets yep. and drum lines, which are basically you put them in the river or in the coastline and, and they have a single hook coming off it. And then there's a float on top. And based on the movement of the float, you can see if you've caught something. And then hand lining. Mm. Yep. Yep. But I think one of the things that we started in 2019 was a big sighting submission campaign. So to ask the general public, because there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of information on these animals mm -hmm. and who didn't realize that this is valuable to science. Yeah. Well, yep. the old fishermen would really. Yeah. yeah. So the old fishermen, but also a lot of recreational fishers and yeah, like some of the stories that came towards us, you know, it's, it's people from all walks of life. Yeah. What's <laughs> one that stands out to you? Oh, that stands out. <laughs> I've you now. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've got one. I've got one. I'm not sure if I can tell the story correctly. You can always change names if you like to, you know. I, I, would, I wouldn't give out the names, <laughs> but I think he was a guy from Western Australia, and he actually sent us a hospital report as well because oh, wow. he managed to release the sawfish, but I think he broke an arm in the process <gasps> or something like that. I can't remember exactly how the story went, but yeah. we were just, yeah, we were giggling. It was like that would have been 15 years ago or something wow. like that that but, it happened to him. 
So there's a lot, you've got a few sores sitting in front of us and, and I've also seen quite a few. I mean, I've got the story that I was telling you earlier of this fisherman who handed in this massive rostrum and it was so big it was, and, and heavy. You know, he said that he, he was a fisherman, he's always been a fisherman and, and it got caught in his neck being the fisherman and uh, unfortunately it didn't survive. Yep. So he had kept the rostrum. And a lot of people do have them as trophies or some people even go out looking and hunting for them for the trophies. Do you still find that now or is that sort of something more back in the 60s, 70s, 80s? So the most important point here to mention is that it's completely illegal. Yes, it If is. you don't have a permit, you're not allowed mm. to target sawfish anywhere in northern Australia. Yep. And if you accidentally catch one, you have to put it back in the water as quickly as possible. Mm. Obviously, also looking after yourself. So if you don't want to deal with the animal, just cut your line. And get get it out. Yep. Yeah. The trophies are an interesting one because, so, I mean, for me, coming to Australia, one of the things that I've realized is that every pub in North Queensland mm. seems to have a big saw. But even those really big saws are slowly disappearing. Oh, and also, so, so I think back in the day, yeah, everybody who came across the sawfish would have taken a saw right, because yeah. people are like, oh, this is cool. I want to have it on my wall. And so with our project, what we do is we, we don't judge people for that. Like mm. I understand that back in the day, this is what people did. Yeah. But nowadays when people take a trophy, it's different because it is an illegal activity. And we have come across animals out in the field that had their saw amputated and it takes them oh. about three months to starve to death. So it's, oh it's a really bad way to go. So they starve to death because they're unable to yep. find their food. Yes. For starters. Unable to find it, unable to manipulate the food, like to catch it. Mm. And also, um, if you look at this one, if you look at the canal, so there is canals oh, yeah. extending into the, into the soil. Mm. And the one in the middle is an extension of the brain case. Oh. And so what that means is when they cut, if you cut a saw really close to the head, you're allowing direct water flow wow. around the brain. So most animals wouldn't even survive that. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, they're tough things. It's not like it accidentally comes off when you catch yes, the animal. Yeah, like this is actual. Yeah, yeah, and it takes a lot of work to get this off the animal. So oh. it's, it's something that is. I just can't imagine someone even wanting to do, like even starting to do such a thing. But, wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. That looks really cool. I have to take photos of this yep. and post it up on our socials and YouTube so people can see what it is that we're talking about yep. there because that's amazing. And remind us again what the rostrum is made of, the saw there. So it's it's cartilage. And so sharks and rays are cartilaginous fish, but they can secondarily calcify some of the cartilage. So I think a lot of in there is actually calcified. Okay, yep. right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Which gives it that strength. Mm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And so I've worked, well, not worked with, but for education purposes, I have spoken about freshwater sawfish before. Cool. And I just find it absolutely fascinating, their life cycle. Mm. So can you can you share with us uh, the, the freshwater sawfish life cycle? And, and you were saying that the, the freshwater sawfish is extremely rare to see and to find. Yeah, so, so the freshwater sawfish is amongst the 100 most endangered animals in the world by the IUCN. Wow. So it's our version of a rhino mm. or mm. an elephant, especially also with the trophy taking. And so what we know about these animals is that they're phylopatric, as we call it. So that means that they're like sea turtles, where the female seems to come back to the same river mouth to give birth, live birth. And then the pups basically swim upstream and they go, they try and go into freshwater and they try and go shallow. Mm -hmm. So 
back in the day and also now in some areas where sawfish are still found, you know, people will see them when they're just walking along the beach, kind of mm-hmm. like like often now you see shovel nose rays there, but in wave zone, you'll see the baby sawfish. But so these guys swim up upstream in rivers and then go shallow to avoid big predators, obviously bull sharks and crocs. Mm. And then they stay in those rivers for the first 10 years of their life. And when they become sexually mature at about three meters, they go back downstream and go out into the sea. But we don't quite know where they go. Yeah, so there's that no. Was- Something I have have been hearing is, is then where do they go? What yeah. happens? Yeah, so so internationally, I think they're confirmed to grow to at least six meters, and mm. so we don't know of any aggregation points or anything like that of them. Mm. So mm. it's uh, for, for me, and that, that's still mind boggling. Like to have six meter animals swimming around, <laughs> where it's like, okay, where are they? Where are you? Where <laughs> have you gone? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of like the start of the sea turtles' lives. They just disappear. No one knows what happens. Yeah. Where, where do they go? Yeah. So how how are they able to go from freshwater to saltwater and then back into freshwater? And what's that? What's that process? I don't know the specifics, but it means that they have osmoregulatory capabilities mm. that not many sharks and rays have. Yep. So bull sharks. So, so their life cycle is very similar to that of bull sharks. So they're also capable of doing that. A lot of other sharks and rays, you can find them in rivers and you can catch them pretty far upstream. But I think what they're doing is they're, you know, staying close to the bottom where you've got higher um, salinity waters, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these guys go quite a a way up to complete freshwater. Pure fresh. Pure fresh. So in the Amazon, they're confirmed, I think, 700 Ks inland. Wow. And I think in the Northern Territory, it was 400 Ks. Wow. But so that also means that they need those long river systems in order to Because I I saw something a couple of years ago where a heap of babies, sawfish, were caught and because we didn't have a very good wet. And so this is is important in regards to our wet season as well. So if we don't have the all-important massive downfalls in the wet season, it really does affect that flow of animals who who rely on it. Yeah, so in Western Australia, so the Fitzroy River in Western Australia, a colleague of mine, he's he's been working there I think since 96. He works with the local Indigenous groups and also – I think there's no commercial gillnet fishermen in there anymore. But so that that river seems to have the highest density of freshwater sawfish in the world. Mm. And because they have such a high density over there, they're actually able to study ecological patterns and and figure out what the needs of these animals are. And so what they found is that the recruitment, so that basically that juveniles survive that first year, they're really depending on a good wet season. Mm. And so what will happen is if you, in the years where you don't have a good wet season, they just don't, they just don't make it. And so let's say we have a good wet season every five years. That means those every five years, there's, there's one group of juveniles that will make it further. That will make it. Yeah. yeah. And um, did you say before that they, they are around about the 10 years up the freshwater or does it take 10 years to become sexually mature? Both. Okay, yep. right. So those so two they, seem to be connected. Ah, yep. right. So yep. they stay up in fresh, complete fresh water. Do they start to head head down into a bit of salinity? I, I think there is something going on about the older they are, the and and so the bigger they are, the further, the deeper the mm. waters, mm. and so that might mean that they're slowly moving downstream along right. that river as well. Yeah. But um, so so one of the things that I always um find interesting is you know in in fish it's not very easy to correlate a length with an age. With an age, yes. Yep. Same with reptiles, right? Yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. Yep. And so in sharks and rays, the way we do that is by 
extracting vertebrae and then slicing them and then counting mm. rings. So they put on growth rings like a tree, yeah. Yeah. but then you also have to have some kind of an indicator mm. what one ring corresponds with because yes. it might not be a year, it might be two years, or it might mm. be six months. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's really cool. There's so much, there's so many animals out there that we still know absolutely nothing yeah. about. I mean, it was, same with the crocodiles. So when I started working with animals 21 years ago, yeah. there was hardly anything really known about crocodiles. And now over the ne- the last 21 years, it's mind-blowing. The books that I have over there yeah. now, yeah. it is mind-blowing. But we're still finding out so much. Yeah. And so I can only imagine that with you starting this 16 years ago and then someone prior to that here in North yeah. Queensland was doing it. Who was that, by the way? Sterling Pebble. Sterling, yeah. 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 Got- so he, he worked, I think he worked until 2009 is maybe when he finished. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Um, I believe I know him through someone, through someone yeah. or, you know, I've met, met him. So yeah, I thought, I thought it was him. Yeah. So then you've, we've still got quite a long way to go to really find out more information. And before off air, we were talking about how you take on students, mm. you go up there and you're doing your research projects and you've got you know, a team of people that you look after and then new people coming in depending yep. on their PhDs. So with with Sarah, what's what's your biggest goal? What's your what's your big picture here? So you you, you started it. Did you have the big picture at the start or does is does this constantly evolve as years go by? So I think the big picture for me is that I would like to take myself out of business. I want to see these animals protected mm. and coming back in good numbers that's a great goal yeah that's but that that's the ultimate goal and mm. but it's 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 gonna be tricky <laughs> yeah. yeah and and it's like one of the issues is you know what you just mentioned like we have and this is with a lot of endangered species we have so many species out there where we we're missing so much information about their ecology mm. but at the same time we need that information in order to protect them properly mm. so it's it's yeah so you're basically at over the last 12 years plus, 16 years, you've been gathering information and right now you, over the last couple of years, you have been trying to get people to bring in the rostrums or the, the, the sores so you can get your DNA, the, the DNA. Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of things that we're doing now is started really with when I started Sharks and Rays Australia because before, as I said, there was a few years where I was wondering on how to do that and I was still, mm. you know, publishing papers for my PhD and yeah. stuff. But, um, yeah, so a lot of that has been going since 2015. Yeah. yeah, so the component with the public is to get people to submit sightings and then also if they have a saw at home that we can get a DNA sample. And do people get to keep that saw still? Because you were saying that you do need a permit. Yes, so we don't keep personal information. Yeah. Technically, you need a permit to have a saw. Mm-hmm. It's always wise, for example, if you have an old saw that was handed down by family, if you can prove that, you know, for example, you have a picture of your grandpa when he was young, when he killed Holy that animal. Yeah. But for us, it's not about, you know, blaming what happened in the past or judging what happened in the past, but it's about using this information in order to protect mm. these animals now. Mm. And so one example is when we started that campaign in 2019, we also started separately to look at historic newspaper articles because okay. we realized that there's a huge archive of that that is available online. Mm. And so we had a situation where we realized that there was two adult sawfish, that, uh, freshwater sawfish that were caught in Morton Bay, right? I think it was in the 60s. And then this this guy calls me and, and he was a biologist and he's like, oh my God, I've, 
well, I can't believe this is not public knowledge, but basically he said that his grandma at some point when she was young caught a freshwater sawfish upstream in the Brisbane River. Oh. And when they dragged the animal out and I think they put it over a motorbike or something like that, it was aborting. And so all these, all these pups came out. Oh. And so that tells us that the Brisbane River was a breeding ground. Wow. And, and so we published a paper on those three data points. Mm. And what it did is it extended the historic range of these animals by 800 kilometers yeah. south. So, so now we know that they used to be present in almost all of Queensland. Wow. And now on the East Coast, they're extremely rare. So yeah. yeah, yeah, because when I was talking to you about the rostrum that that guy brought in, yeah. you were just like, "Hang on a minute, give me that yeah. information." <laughs> well, it's so rare on the east coast, and yeah. yeah, I had no idea. So you said before that they were it, it was aborting, which which is very sad, and it was having pups. Yep. So explain how they reproduce, and I've just got this horrible picture in my head. <laughs> lots of difficulty with rostrums <laughs> yeah how do they reproduce and you, you were saying pups so they don't lay eggs yeah so, um, so so they give live birth and when when the pups are born they look like an adult sawfish but they're just a lot smaller so i think mm-hmm. around 40 to 80 centimeters wow. maybe 70 to 80 depending on the species yep but when they're born their teeth the teeth on the saw already exist but there is a soft squishy sheet on the outside yeah. so it's, it's not really a sheet it, it's the um the skin is is really soft and squishy mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of expanding yeah and so when they're born there is no teeth well, thank goodness poking out oh yeah, exactly. I can only imagine poor mom. <laughs> yeah. and how many roughly does she usually have i think four to twelve. Oh wow yeah. that many yeah huh and that is with the majority of the species or ju- are we just talking freshwater sawfish, the large tooth one here? Or I can only remember it from freshwater sawfish. Yeah. I think the other ones are in the same range, but, yeah, wow. I can't remember the specifics. Yep. Yep. And then the likelihood of them coming pr- um, becoming prey to other animals is, huge. is yeah. quite high. Yeah. 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 How long does it then take for their teeth on the rostrum there to harden up and for them to be able to eat and find food and, and, and protect themselves. Very good questions. Yeah, so <laughs> still finding that out. Yeah. So this is all, all the, the most amazing research that anyone out there who would like to contact Barbara mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to, to find this out. And then once you have all this information, then you can – so is this is this something that you will be working towards with management plans, with local stakeholders, or is this for public knowledge so then the public know and understand that at certain times of the year if there's pups around, this is what this means? Or what's the... I think it's all of that Yeah, because what I've realised is so, so now in Queensland most species, like there are still found on the east coast in certain areas, but main, they're mainly found in the Gulf of Carpentaria. So mm. it seems to be that they're more restricted now to remote areas. Mm-hmm. Green sawfish, for example, used to be present all the way down to Sydney. Mm-hmm. So with mm. the historic newspaper articles, we think that, for example, mainly used to be a, a nursery area. So there was a lot of juveniles caught there. Mm-hmm. But so it, it really everything needs to go everywhere. It's up to the individual who accidentally catches a sawfish in a remote area yeah. that they need to have that knowledge that these animals are endangered so that they release it properly. Yeah. But we also need we need stronger protection and we do need you know, we need everybody to work together and really look after these animals. So that, you know, comes down to recreational fishermen, commercial fishermen, you know, fisheries themselves, mm. um, everyone. Mm. And you you guys get funding to be able to do all these projects. I can see I've got brochures in front of me. So you're obviously 
you know, print out brochures, you get education out there. I would love to definitely from my my side of things help with education or being able to distribute brochures and stuff like that because this is something that kids absolutely are fascinated by. Mm. And, I mean, my son this morning was so excited. He actually sleeps with a sawfish every night. Oh, my God. He has a sawfish (laughs) that he sleeps with every night. Yes, he he loves him. And, actually, I will say that it disappeared one day and he was devastated and for his birthday I got him a replica. And he just, I'm not joking you, he just cried for like 20 minutes because he was so happy. He got his, its name's Razor. He got his Razor back (laughs) and he cuddles up to it every night because it's so fascinating to see this ray-looking creature with this huge saw and then these teeth coming off it. It's it's it creates so much curiosity. One, how that was even created. Yeah. Like, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, I think that's the, the reason why I work with these animals because every time we catch one I look at it and I'm like oh my god you're so beautiful and so scary and just amazing like it's yeah like the fact that we have these these animals around I think is really you know it's special and and Mm. like I think we would lose much more than just the species if we lose them because it's that biological diversity that that we love and that makes for example even for north queensland like beautiful region but that makes it unique is is seeing all these crazy cool animals absolutely and And, i mean look they and this is something that you're probably finding out and you'll keep finding out years and years later is what animals rely on them for food and then what what effect that will have if they do disappear yeah so so that's that's one of the big things as well so we take little muscle tissue samples when we catch an animal and we do stable isotope analysis with that so when you work with sharks and rays so i learned how to work with these animals in the bahamas right in the shark lab heaps fun best place (laughs) and so what we did there is we were working with juvenile lemon sharks and in order to figure out where they stand in the food web and Mm. you know are they selective about their prey and things like that what you have to do is you have to flip them on their backs, which puts them into tonic immobility, so they get kind of hypnotized. And then you have to pull the stomach out with the forceps and collect all these, everything that falls out. And then you give that to probably a poor volunteer (laughs) to identify the parts and figure out what it is that you're looking at. So that's extremely tedious, but it is also, you can't do it in every species. Yes. And so Sterling back in the day found that I think 60% of sawfish were caught with empty stomachs. Hmm. So there might be some kind of maybe capture stress or something that they just regurgitate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so with stable isotopes, you don't, you don't like the information that you get is different, but it, it still gives you an idea of the food web and what they depend on. Yeah. Right. And what we know from places, for example, Lake Nicaragua, there used to be a commercial fishery for sawfish in the seventies and eighties. The amount of animals that they pulled out of those the river and the lake is is incredible like they were they were catching 200,000 a year and so the amount of biomass that is lacking in our ecosystems now because they're gone wow it's just it's it's mind-blowing that is mind-blowing yeah 200,000 yeah and in many different examples in the aquatic sphere so marine there's so many examples now where we know that these old stories of like dugong herds with 150 animals swimming past, like they're true. And wow, yeah. that is a scary thought. We are in it 2021, is. and like you go out on a boat, and mm. you will. You, well, 
here on the Great Barrier Reef area or getting out there, I've I've never seen a dugong. I've never seen one up here. Yeah. It's yeah. but but I have heard that people have seen them yeah. heading out to Fitzroy Island yeah. around that particular area. But to imagine that yeah. you could you could be going along and seeing that amount. And this is this is the scary thought. So being in wildlife education for the last twenty one years, up here in North Queensland, I, I moved up here to Cairns because it was one, I love wildlife. One, I love being amongst nature and, and I yep. don't like the idea of being stuck in a house. My house is quite tiny for five of us because we're always, we're, we're not in it. And there's a lot of wildlife around. And there's a lot of wildlife <laughs> around, right? Yes. <laughs> and so so for me, I moved up here because there was less people. It was, it, but, but in the last 21 years, I'm now looking for somewhere else to move because mm. it's too busy for me. Yep. But what we're finding is the more people are coming up here because we do, we want to connect with nature. Yeah. But the big problem that I'm experiencing, and this is my perception only, I'm speaking from here, yep. is that people are coming up, they're wanting to experience nature, they're wanting to go for, for swims and go out to the Great Barrier Reef and enjoy camping and mm. everything. However, there's still that level of self-responsibility that is lacking yeah. in regards to, well, I'm heading out to the reef, so how can I actually play my part so I can enjoy this beautiful reef that is mm. given to them? Um, but still play their, their, their role in that responsibility to make sure that it's healthy and safe. Yeah. And how's my boat? And what's my rubbish I'm using here? And what sunscreen am I wearing? Or if they're going camping, how are they d- getting rid of their waste and, you know, so forth? I'm yeah. sure you get my point. But, yeah. but I'm finding that a lot more people are wanting this experience, but yet not playing their part. And this is such a big thing that we're seeing. That just that just put a funny picture into my mind when we came back from a field trip and we we always take our trash with us and and sometimes you know even cans and stuff if I find that we can't recycle them we take it back to cans like yeah. we, we brought them there so we might as well take them back but we've had multiple trash bags on the roof of the troopy that exploded at some oh, point no. and just covered everything in juices so sometimes yeah you gotta. <laughs> Sometimes you go yeah. to drastic measures to bring the waste yeah. back, and yeah. that happens. Yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. That's when we learn to um to bury our food waste and you know make it inaccessible to local animals and stuff like that. Yeah, Just, yeah. yeah. And wow. I think I think that stuff is so important. That, but also. What I've found in my work, and I think this is really one of the big things that keeps me going, is that as soon as people are educated, mm-hmm. I have not met a single person who wants to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is across the board. This is yeah. recreational fishermen. This is commercial fishermen. This is this is everyone. This is school kids, this yeah. is indigenous rangers. Once they understand how endangered these animals mm-hmm. are, they will start playing their part and Absolutely. they will become stewards for them. Yeah. And because they understand what's at risk. Yeah. A very quick announcement to make, but I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. And that was my question is what do we do about it and education is key. Yeah, it is yeah. absolutely key. And I, I use the good old tagline, education is the key to conservation because yeah. if you don't know and yeah. then you don't know why as well, yeah. w- well why would you? Yeah, so exactly. we, we have yeah. us as I feel that we've got, well, we're, we're educators. We've got a big responsibility yes. ourselves <laughs> is to is to educate and you've got your brochures and, you you know, we've got the podcasts and you go out to the schools and you do your research and you talk to people and hopefully those people talk to people and so forth. So we have like a a huge responsibility. 
Oh, that's, that's sort of like, oh, wow, that's quite heavy. <laughs> it is heavy, but it's but also it's, special. It like for me, special. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Austria. I came over here 18 years ago and to, to now think that I'm one of the main people who are helping these species to survive in Queensland. Absolutely. Like that's, that's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So your yeah. name came up. Who, who is the specialist in sawfish? Yeah. Barbara. <laughs> in Queensland. I've, I've got in Queensland, very good Queensland. colleagues looking after these animals in the Northern oh, Territory yeah. and WA. And but so yeah. do you, do you work and collaborate with other, other people across yes. Australia to be able to yep. gather your yep. data? And, and learn and research yeah. from each other. And internationally as well. So, for example, those DNA samples from the source, mm. they go to a friend and colleague of mine in Mississippi. Wow. And so she's got a global source search project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they've been able to extract DNA from, I think, the 1800s from source. Wow. So they, at the moment, I think they're still working really hard on, on fine-tuning those methods, but any DNA sample that we sent to them goes into a database and you know once the methods become more detailed mm. they can then mm. revisit those samples and extract more information from them wow. so technology mm. is really bringing forward the story of, yeah. of, of yeah. history yeah it's amazing and so this one that you have in front of you is the green yep. is, am, am i correct yep. yep so the green sawfish that's huge um and you were saying that it's really hard to age by by looking at a particular sawfish as such but yep. can you do that with looking at this now after any DNA records? Like, is there any information? I would have to ask my student, mm. Nikki, because she's got all these numbers in her head. Yeah, so wow. I can get back to you. Like yeah, she, yeah. she's, um, yeah, she, she's aged all our saws that are going into display cases wow. just based on the size. Um, but I, yes. I wouldn't know it. And so yeah. explain the display cases because they look amazing and people can find this on your social media because yep. you, you posted that. Yep. So all these beautiful um, rostrums that have been handed in to you or they want to stay in a particular pub for example up in the cape or so yep. forth so you um the project is is making everything educational instead of that just placed on the wall yep. it's so yeah explain a little bit about that yeah so um my phd student nikki she's i just threw information at her and i think that started about two years ago so mm-hmm. she's just started her phd before she was an intern and i think she said to me that she's she's recently realized that she spent about 400 hours so far making the cases that um, designing the backgrounds for the cases that we now have. So we're, we've got, I think printed, we have 27, five of them have been delivered. I hope the rest goes out in 2021, as soon as we can start driving up the Cape again. But so these cases contain saws that have been tagged by fisheries so each saw has an individual mm. number and is listed on our permit and we've been allowed to to lend these cases out to different institutions so and and there's also a lot of information about the biology and then also for example a qr code where people can go back to our homepage and figure out different things like there's videos on there on how to release sawfish there is the page on where to submit a sighting or mm. if they want to read more about the work that we do or join us in the field and they can read the blog and things like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I love it. And then some of the pubs that already have really big old saws, they just get a um, um, information board. But I think the point is we want everybody to understand that by the time they hit a river that these animals are endangered. And 
hopefully even talk about them in a pub. Yes, <laughs> which is the best place to have a yarn. Yes. All right. <laughs> Good old Aussie pub and a bit of a chinwag and I wonder what stories yeah. come up with the size of the sawfish. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's typical for fishermen. It was this big. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're um, now it's Sharks and Rays Australia. Yep. So um, explain to us a little bit more about what else you you also have done or do um, within within that your your Sara. Yeah. So as I said, sawfish are raised, but when we when we're out in the field and we set our gear, like with gillnets, for example, they're very unspecific in what they catch. Mm. So depending on your mesh size, for example, that defines which animal can swim through and which animal will get caught. And so what we do is we collect data from every animal that hits our gear. We try and release every animal in the best possible condition. So sometimes we can just take a quick picture, estimate the length, throw it back. And then with different animals, we we put different tags on them and things. So our data set at the moment contains, I think, 29 species of sharks and rays and about 50 species of teleosts. Teleosts. So normal fish. So like from, from. I was like, did I say that right? (laughs) (laughs) So from barra to archer fish to, yeah, all kinds of things. All these big. Big words catfish. that I get, that I I get confused about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so I think for me the the important point with that is that when an animal gets caught in a net and has to be released, it's a quite stressful experience for the animal. Mm-hmm. And so when we collect data from that species, I feel like we can at least we establish a database where in some ways we can give back to that animal. Yeah, and beautiful. yeah, and 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 one of the things that happened since I started Sharks and Rays Australia, like we, we often catch different species of white spotted guitar fish. Internationally, they've just, so I think that was last year, they were actually de- declared the most endangered family of sharks and rays, which before that was sawfish. But it seems to be in a lot of um, countries around the world where sawfish have gone extinct, mm. fishers are now targeting guitar fish and shovel nose rays. Right. And so we have a good stronghold of them in Australia. But again, with our data set, we can, we can show that and mm. we, you know, take pictures from them, take DNA samples. I've sent the DNA samples to a colleague of mine in Africa and she, um, I think the initial analysis, like, because, because I looked at some of the pictures and I was like, I've, I've got rays of the world, which is just come out two years ago and some of the species are not in there or they're in there but they're restricted to asia i'm like there's something happening here and then she she confirmed with me that some of the animals that we have are officially not found in australia anymore oh so yeah so that means we you know we 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 try and do whatever we can with whatever we have done absolutely that's great love that yeah love it yeah and there's all kinds of all kinds of things in the in the data set like have you ever heard of winghead sharks no. Okay, so wingheads. I love these guys. So wingheads are hammerheads. Um, I think maximum total length is around two meters. And a friend of mine, before I ever saw my first one, described it as a shark with a bicycle handlebar. <laughs> right? And they're like when you catch the juveniles, they're about what is that, forty to sixty centimeters, and the hammer can be a third of their total wow. length. Wow. So it's literally, it's really skinny, really long. Yep. And they're just beautiful. <laughs> wow. So they're a hammerhead shark, yep. but they're called a wing head? They're called a wing head because the, the head is just so different. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. There's so much that we don't know. I wish I wish I could live 500 years old so I could just keep researching and and finding out all this beautiful information. Oh wow, cool. So um, I think it's really important to reiterate how people get in contact with you in regards to if they have a sore or a rostrum. Um, they can contact you. So what is the best way to be able to reach out to do the DNA samples? So so the homepage is saw.fish, no.com, just saw.fish, but we have a specific part on the homepage we can, which can also be reached via cytags.com, and that's that's our submission form. So that's where people can submit absolutely anything in regards to sharks and rays. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes we've had submissions where people were like, oh, I've seen a lot of sharks and rays, but I can't quite figure out what this is. And then it was a sawfish that had its saw amputated. Oh, right. Yeah. And so we're interested in, in the sightings, but then also if people have a saw at home, especially if they if they are aware of the story of where it came from, mm-hmm. where it might have been caught and maybe what decade or what year, then we'd like to hear about that. And um, there's the option we can guide them through the process of taking a DNA sample for us or we can take the DNA samples as well. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And also if people have saws that they don't want anymore, they can yeah. donate them to us. And yeah. then we get them tagged by fisheries so they become part of our permit. Yeah. And yep. And then they Go on might display. end up in a display yep. somewhere. Yep. I, w- I love that. I would love to be able to take a, it around to schools and be able to yeah. help you in that education and then hand out the brochures for you or we could we could even work together and yep. create a beautiful ch- early childhood one because I uh, yep. work a lot with early childhood and be able to educate them about that because here at the Cairns Aquarium they had the freshwater sawfish yep. and um, I believe they don't have it now because it i'm not 100 percent sure but it's apparently got too big so it's gone on to be- bigger and better places it's been oh. released oh it's being released yep. <gasps> really were you involved in that i'm not sure i could talk about it <laughs> <laughs> it's secret but uh, wow amazing it's okay. happy and healthy beautiful that's all we need yep. to know yep. that's amazing <laughs> Well, maybe I should talk about it. It's happy and healthy. We put a tag on it. Yeah. And so we're not getting as much data points from it at the moment as we were hoping to because the river seems to be really, really fresh at the moment. Uh And so this tag only works for a certain salinity. But um, I think – so there was a study done in Northern Territory. So colleagues of mine over there, they worked with a local aquarium. And so so the the researchers would go out, catch sawfish, tag them, release them, and then look at – how many of them stayed around for how long. So that gives you an idea of how many animals make it through the first year, how many Mm -hmm. animals make Mm -hmm. it through the second year and things like that. And what they found is that the – and some of those animals that they caught then went into a public aquarium where they stayed for maybe three years or something and then got released. And so what they found was that some of those sawfish – that were released and spent those first three years in captivity, it actually increases their chance of survival because it's the smaller they are, the more likely they are to get eaten. Yeah. And so I see that aquaria could have a really positive impact okay. on sawfish populations mm-hmm. if they keep on doing that. Mm-hmm. But so they need to acknowledge when the animal gets too big, they need mm-hmm. to obviously calculate the cost of releasing these animals again. But I think it's something that could really be quite valuable. Yeah. So this this data then uh, of the Cairns Aquarium being able to showcase, because that was taken from the wild the, yes. the with, with permits yep. And, yep. and done the correct way. Yep. 
um, with Cairns, Cairns Marine and, and also all the fisheries and biosecurity yep. and stuff. So with that, that data and that information is really valuable for you. Yes. So at the age, do you, do you know the age that it was when, or because uh, I know it's really hard to age them, but roughly um, the age or the size that it was when it was caught? Because I do remember when I was there, it was like 2000, what, 2017, I believe. I um, think it was two meters 40 when we measured it. And yeah. that was just before the release. And yeah. usually it's around about the three meter size for sexual maturity. Is that correct? Yes. Or, and yeah. so that differs between males and females as well. And also being in captivity, um, when I started my PhD, for example, Molulaba had a yes. had a sawfish there, mm. and that animal had been in captivity, I think, for ten years. But it was only like two meters or something. Like there was there was definitely something that that made me question whether this animal was stunted based on right. the size of the tank. Yep. So I think from a captive animal, and also they ate a lot more, so they could in the right environment mm. maybe grow faster. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to guess and yeah. Yeah, right. Yep. But, well, I'm really happy that these, because I believe it was Ziggy, I think they called it. Maybe. <laughs> Ziggy, <laughs> Ziggy um, has been released back into the wild. That is fantastic. I love that story because it, it became, Ziggy became such a beautiful part in talking about that freshwater, saltwater yep. kind of journey and the importance of our wet season and the importance of that across northern Australia. Yeah. Um, not just for sawfish, but sawfish played a big part in that in yep. regards to our talks there at the at the beginning. And for them to see a real life sawfish just really sparked people's curiosity into wanting know, to right? know like, more. Yeah. And you could sit it. there and just yeah. watch watch it swim around for ages. Yeah. It, it was yep. it's truly amazing. Yep. Yeah! Wow, I'm so happy about that. Thank but so also, that. you've got the um, you've got the Sonia the Sawfish comic in front I of you. Do. Um, yes. So both Sterling and the artist so Sterling came up with that book, but also the artist allowed us to use some of the images. And mm. on our homepage, we've got a food web game. Yes, I saw that. And that that's one of the things that we play in schools with kids. And it works so, for a lot of different ages because you can you can color it in, but then there's also facts about each animal on each sheet. Yeah. And then once we've, you know, once the kids have, have colored in different animals, we then basically ask them who eats whom and then to lay out a food web and then to figure out what, how does that affect each other? Because, and I, th I think the big message is that if we want to look after sawfish, we need to look after the whole mm. ecosystems. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also with the food, the food web, like I'm just, I was just squeezing through this, the, the book. I've had this for quite some time. Yeah. I can't remember how long I've had it for, but it's really important. I think that came out in 2009 oh, or oh, something. I think, yeah, that, I think it's it is. at the front here somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, so it's really important for the kids to understand the food webs and the food yep. chains because, oh, 2008, first yep. published in 2008. Wow, that's really cool. But for them to know and understand right from an early age the role of each yep. animal within yep. the food web is so important because what we are experiencing here in Cairns right now, and this is what we talk about a lot within all of my shows, is the role of crocodiles. Yep. And so if children don't understand or even have that first concept delivered to them at yep. such an early age, then as they grow up into here in Queensland, it's in every year level of the curriculum in regards yep. to wildlife and conservation and sustainability and habitats and ecosystems. Food webs are huge for the kids yep. to learn. And so I love that it's in a book and a game 
that that you've created and I would love to be able to do something like that for crocodiles I think that would yeah. be really good well the crocs the crocs are in our yes web, so I, they're in there <laughs> yeah I saw actually there's a really cool picture of the frog uh, frog <laughs> of the croc yeah I love them the artist is beautiful yeah can people still get this book the adventures of Sonia the freshwater sawfish from your website or no game? I think I don't know if it's still available mm, so, but you, yeah. they can definitely go to your website can so your website is saw.fish yeah. that's an odd website it's a good one isn't <laughs> that's it that's great so no .com no .com.au it's saw.fish yeah. and you can get well you can see all those beautiful pictures yeah. of Sonia the sawfish and that nice game and I think it'd be really important for parents to be able to print out and play that within their own home yeah. because because this isn't just about kids as well this is also adults and yep. so adults learn through their children and this is how we try and get to the adults is through the kids yep, exactly because every <laughs> single day when we're doing our talks those children go home and have dinner yeah hopefully at a dinner table and they have a good chat you know, yeah. sometimes yep. there's really crazy stories that come out of the kids' mouths, especially four-year-olds. And so the, the adults are thinking, really, that happened at kindy? <laughs> and then the curiosity is open. And the next minute you know, thank you to technology, parents are becoming more curious and they're going to watch a documentary with the kids or they're going to research yeah. more about specific yep. animals. So from the, you know, for us, from the perspective of education, mm. we go through the children yes. because I know as a mum of three, I'm like, really? The moon... It, what and then we'll, we'll google it <laughs> i gotta also say like for me the um so every field trip that we do we we try to do a school visit doesn't always work out because sometimes it's in the school holidays and things like that but um the school visits are an absolute highlight yeah it's like the kids get so so pumped about it and they just absolutely love it and i think one of the things was um one of the first school visits that we did in old mapoon um indigenous community north of Weipa. And one of the teachers sent me an email 10 days later and he was like, this is incredible. The kids are still talking still about sausage. And I think the way I see it was that we combine the boring science that, you know, they learn in school with mm -hmm. the stuff that these kids see when they're out on country with their family. Mm -hmm. And so, and then we had the indigenous rangers with us. And so suddenly there's a, there's a career path yeah. and things like that. And, and when, I don't know, when a six year old comes up to me and goes, how come you know so much about sharks? And I'm like, oh, it's because I spend a lot of time at university. And these little boys' eyes just start glowing. And he was like, oh, my God, you can study sharks at university? I'm like, yes, you can. Just sharks? Yes. <laughs> that is so cool. It yeah. opens up the opportunities, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. But also in regards to what you just said with the boring kind of way of, of learning in school is with, with all of a sudden your visit. You can learn maths, you can learn yep. measurement, you can learn history, science, um, geography. Yep. Everything is embedded in it. So it becomes down then to how creative teachers have time to yeah. be yep. <laughs> but also can take that learning opportunity, that curiosity, the spark, the passion yep. of those kids and go, right, excellent, now we can learn measurement, get the tape measure out, how long yep. was the rostrum, how many teeth are there, if we take five out, what happens there? And, yep. you know, all of a sudden there is just so much learning yeah that can yeah. actually happen from that visit yeah um so I think that's really beautiful to be honest I that's how education should be <laughs> yeah I think so I remember um for me one of my most favorite um classes that I took at the University of Vienna um studying biology was biological physics and it was physics but it was you know when you learn about um 
What was it? Yeah, what do you see? It? She no, no. Really so, so, so everything, everything was from my example is the um the the, the eyes of insects. Oh. So you learn about lenses and refraction oh. and all these things, but you learn about it through the the eye learning about an eye of, of an insect and how and the physics behind it. And I found that stuff so interesting. Yeah. Or like termite mounts and the, um, you yes. know, the, 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 the air conditioning systems that they have in oh, there and things yes. like that. Like I, I just love that stuff. It's so, so make cool. it, make it real and, and yeah. You know, oh, it's, yeah. And then suddenly you see it everywhere. And that means physics is not just something mm-hmm. you, mm. you, you study in your classroom, but it's absolutely, it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. it. It makes it real. And and for me, I reckon I would have learnt more at school if it was presented to me in that way because I yeah. was the one staring out the window, wishing I was outside, looking for the bees and the butterflies yeah. and finding out yeah. like, what happens inside of a cocoon. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I the, the, the classroom kind of lifestyle was not yeah. well suited for me. Yeah. Um, but I love the thought, and this is why I love home education as well, is because parents can actually, and you were talking about it with up, up in the Cape, you know, they go out in country with, with the family and you learn so much. That yep. is where you can actually learn a lot from doing stuff like yes. that. It's not yep. just the traditional classroom, sit down, be quiet, stay still, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so home education is becoming more and more common now in Australia, but I think it was quite common overseas anyway but now it's becoming more in Australia and I love it because I'm coming across all these people who are doing it as groups and every single day they're going on an outing but it's not come on we need to sit down and still do your schoolwork because Mm. that's not what it's meant to be if you're home educating and you're still actually doing it like a classroom you're missing the point I believe personally again that's my own opinion go outside and have your excursions whether it's okay we need to do the grocery shopping today you can get so much out of it because yeah, it's real. I, I agree, but I also think that education is is hard, right? Like I remember, for example, when, when we did maths in school and, and I sat down at home and I was trying to get my head around it and mm. you sit there for hours and you just can't figure it out mm-hmm. and at some point it goes plop and everything falls into place and you're like, oh, my God, what did my brain just do? <laughs> and it's just it's just such a great thing. And, and I think when you learn things like that in school as well, it means that you're putting yourself in a position where you have to deal with something that you don't understand and try and get your head mm. around it and understand that not everything is easy, yes. right? And I find that that is that's something that really it really influenced me. I think because it showed me that yeah, you can do stuff that's mm. difficult, mm. and I, I kind of this is what I do with my life. Like the work that I do, it's it's not always easy. It's very rewarding yes. when it does work. But it's not always easy, but it's so valuable. Well, you went through at um, university and did your PhD. Yes. So that's like a massive amount of 13 years of, of like <laughs> that, that. So 13, 13 years, years of uni plus, yeah, yeah. plus then your 13 years of schooling. Yes. So, wow. Yep. Yep. So you've been within the, the education system for a very long time. And I gotta say, <laughs> I loved it. I loved great. it. Like studying biology back at the University of Vienna was. Absolutely fantastic. University of Vienna? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Awesome. It was fantastic. And so we had um the reason why it's so long is because we had a different system. So we didn't have a bachelor mm. independent from a master's. Okay. So oh. you had to go for six years. And then afterwards mm. I, I did my PhD and then a postdoc. Mm. So yeah, and and in Austria, therefore the PhD would have been only two years. Yeah. But at that point I was like, I want to do this in Australia where it's yeah. up to four years. And I was loving it. So yeah, took four years. Yeah. So you're very <laughs> academic. You're like because you're you're still doing all your research. Yeah. In yeah. some ways I am very academic, but mm. in some ways I'm not. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why I found a Trikes and Rays Australia because I understand that the like the work with Sawfish that we do is not just about publishing papers. Mm-hmm. It's it's about the people on the ground. Yes. So it takes everything. It needs everything and it, mm. it can't just be one of those bits. Yep. 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 Wow. That's pretty impressive. It's good fun. It's not pretty impressive. <laughs> it is impressive. <laughs> and it's great fun. Yes. And you get to educate and you get to experience these amazing animals out in the wild. Yeah. And so if if you if we could propel ourselves forward into the future, paint us a picture of what you are going to see in regards to sawfish. Do you want my optimist or my pessimist? <laughs> No. What do you want to share? Oh, what I'm hoping to see is... What you will see is... Yes. <laughs> what I will see is sustainable fisheries in Queensland that are not just sustainable about the target species but also about the bycatch and lots of people from different walks of lives who have become absolute stewards of these animals. Amazing. And... Yeah, I think that's what it really comes down to that we, I think conservation only works if you work with people and, for example, not lock them out or destroy jobs mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Great future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if people want to help you out, they can contact you on the website. I'll put all the details into yep. the um, podcast notes. Yep. Now, obviously, you can't take everyone out into the field, but you are looking for students maybe in the future to be able to help with certain research or what's what's the plans in, rega- in regards to students and research in regard like this is university students by the way yeah so so at the moment our model is that anybody can join us in the field Mm -hmm. there is a financial contribution so you don't have to be just university students no no no. it's for absolutely anyone better oh there is certain limitations because we do work in extremely remote areas so for example and i always hate saying this but for example if somebody has a bee sting allergy that hasn't been managed we can't take that person out. Yeah. So, so there is a certain fitness level is required mm-hmm. because we are in most expeditions, we're going extremely remote. Yep. So yeah, people need to be able to cope with that. Amazing. A lot of the sampling that we do, so a lot of the fishing is around dusk and dawn. Mm-hmm. So we work really difficult hours and mm-hmm. sleep during the day when it's hot. hot. <laughs> But I always tell people that, you know, when they come back from a field trip, they need to take about three days to land back in reality because those trips are so exciting that you come back and you're like, oh, my God, what am I doing now? Yes. Where's my where's my group? I've suddenly, oh. I'm, I'm by myself again. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And there is a financial contribution because that's how you fund all this research. Yeah. It's and important. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of, a lot of um, research funding doesn't fund overheads. So like insurance costs and things like that. And often they don't fund, you know, our staff members to come out in the field and also things like food and petrol. Mm. So, so with all yeah. of that, but what it means is that anybody who comes out in the field is actively contributing to selfish conservation in Queensland. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I should come on one of your trips. Yeah, you should. That it's, would it's so be much fun. amazing. It's so much fun. Oh my gosh. And also, can people just donate in regards to anything to help you with being able to continue your research? Yes, and, yep. absolutely. And they can do that through your website? Yes. So Perfect. I think the, the donations, we don't have a system set up on the website, so it would be better to get in touch with me. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
Well, thank you so much for sharing everything with us. I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions. People message us all the time. So if it is, I will push it your way and I will take some photos and we'll be able to post them up on our socials so everyone can have a bit of a look at these amazing rostrums and also find out more details from your website because I love your website and there's lots of information there. And then you can also go further with all the resources that you've also posted. So thank you so much for coming along for our Wild Chats. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. We'll see you again soon. Wow, I so enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Barbara, for dropping in. And I really enjoyed spending some time with you and seeing all those rostrums that you brought in with the different species as well. So it's so good to be able to have the hands-on experience with that uh, for myself to be able to learn more so then I can continue the work of education as well. So I look forward to working with you. So thank you, Barbara. Everyone else, you can actually find information at sharksandraysaustralia.com or a quick and easy way to go there is saw.fish. I'll actually put all the links in the podcast notes as per usual. I hope everyone's having a wonderful week. We are a little bit behind in our podcast at the moment. We are having so much amazing time with all of our wildlife education, getting into the schools and having a chat. So I've got a massive lineup of amazing people coming your way. We will try to get back to weekly releases, but otherwise it is fortnightly at the moment, which I'm sure you all understand Please let us know. Reach out to us if there is a specific topic you want us to cover. Otherwise, you'll hear from us next week with the next Wild Chat. Take care.